From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 26th. Utah Governor Spencer Cox calls addressing the social determinants of health a strategic priority of his administration. In his one Utah roadmap, Cox outlines goals like investing in services that impact social determinants and developing a statewide health equity plan. Yesterday on the newscast, we spent some time looking into the conditions in which we are born, grow, work, and live, and how they are impacted by social, economic, and political forces. We spoke to medical providers like the Mob Free Health Clinic and Intermountain Healthcare about connecting the doctor's office to social aid organizations, and how research shows that having childcare or safe housing plays a bigger role in our health outcomes than individual behavior. We also spoke with Governor Cox about these social determinants. So today on the news, we'll hear our full interview with the governor. And just a note to place things in time, we spoke to him earlier this month. And in this interview, he references IHC, that's Intermountain Healthcare, which provides medical services in Utah, Nevada, and Idaho. So I wanted to start off, you know, I was looking through your 500 days plan when your team released it and started reading about Okay, economic advancement, education, you know, rural matters. And then under health security, I see social determinants of health and I sort of do this double take um, because I know that this is something that's often ignored, um, but is incredibly important to our individual health outcomes. Um, So I wanted to know, you know, why did you include the social determinants of health in your 500 days plan as one of your priorities as governor? Well, Molly, the, the reason I included it were the, the very reasons you just mentioned is that it is incredibly important. And unfortunately, I, I don't think especially policymakers have spent enough time, one, understanding um, what what it means and, and two, working to correct those those problems that we're seeing. So, so my, my journey with social determinants actually started several years ago. And um, I, I had some meetings. We're, we're working on uh, intergenerational poverty issues. And in, in Utah, one of the kind of legs of the stool with intergenerational poverty that we, we care about is health outcomes. And, and I just started noticing some of these trends. And, and I had some meetings with, uh, with some folks at IHC. And they had become interested in in social determinants of health. And I started to dive into uh, the data around it. And and this this might surprise some people. It might surprise some of your listeners. But the Trump administration, um, they're they're kind of the underlings in the health side of things, were were really good on social determinants. And and, and they started doing research and sharing that with the states. And and so we we started a pilot project um, together with IHC. And it was a pilot project in St. George and in Ogden. Um, those were the two of the zip codes that we chose to start working on. And, and, and again, I, I was just blown away by what we were finding, what, you know, that your zip code determines uh, how, how long you live, uh, your, your access to health care. That's the big one we focus on is access to health care. But social determinants is so much more than that. And what most people don't understand is that access to health care is actually a, a fairly small percentage uh, of total health outcomes. And it's all these other things, right? Access to healthy food, access to transportation, access to housing, all of these things add up to determine not just how long we'll live, but the the type of life that we'll live. Exactly. So, you know, I I think an easy way to think about it is, you know, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. 
and they're all sort of shaped by the distribution of money, power, and resources at local levels and even global levels. Um, you know, do you think that COVID-19 has exposed gaps when it comes to these issues in, in Utah? Well, not only do I think it's exposed gaps, I mean, I can I can say unequivocally that it has exposed gaps. And, and, and I don't know that it's so much exposed them because, again, we knew that they were there and, and we, we, we've, we had started talking about them. Uh, but, but to me, that was an almost academic exercise. Mm-hmm. And, and this was like the, the, the reality and the microscope. Um, that was shown on this. And, and it's, it, it's something I care about coming from rural Utah. Um, we, we have our own set of issues and then our, our communities of color, um, multicultural communities and, and some of our, our urban communities have, have similar dynamics, but, but for different reasons. And, and, and that's, that's exactly what happened. I, I mean, I remember looking when, when we were finally getting testing ramped up and, and, and then I started to see some of our testing numbers and I, I kept asking for demographic um, information on, on people who had contracted COVID and who, people who were hospitalized and then, and then the deaths early on. And I, I was hoping I would be surprised uh, and, and I wasn't, uh, unfortunately, when I saw the disparities that were existing there. And so, you know, it was all an all hands on deck uh, opportunity for us. I chaired the Multicultural Commission for, uh, for seven years mm-hmm. and, and this, we were doing some work around this with the Multicultural Commission and, and I brought them together and, and we put this task force together to just work on, on our communities of color with COVID. And, and I'm, I'm really proud of what they were able to do um, we, we went from having, especially our Latino community who represented about 42% of our, or actually it was as high as 45% of our cases in, in Utah. And, and they're only 14% of our population. And we were able to drive that down under 20% um, over, over several months. But uh, I mean, it, it, yes, it exposed in a very big way, kind of with a microscope or a magnifying glass, maybe is the better, the, the better analogy, um, what, what's happening out there. And, and but, but the good news is coming out of this, and, and we're working on it with vaccines. We released our, our policy on, uh, on, on getting vaccines out to the, the hardest to reach communities and, and the changes that need to be made there. So we're starting to think about this, not as a separate thing that we have to deal with, but as part of every conversation that we have. And, and that's where we'll make, I think, the, the largest strides moving forward. I know that social determinants of health was outlined in your, you know, one Utah roadmap. It's outlined as a priority. Do you have any thoughts about actual action steps, you know, in this next year? I know bringing it up as part of every conversation is is definitely important. Um, is there anything else as far as actionable items? Well, we, we will have some actionable items. One of the one of the hard things I had a, a governor tell me when I became governor, former governor, tell me he said the worst part of becoming governor is becoming governor uh, because you have uh, you 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 have two months to put your entire team together. You know, we have 24,000 employees in the state and you've got a, an entire new cabinet and senior staff. And then the legislative session starts and it started a week earlier this year. And you've got to fend off uh, 1,200 bill files and 700 bills and 500 that will pass. And so what, what we did, and, and, and again, I've got a brand new team trying to get their feet under them, but we gave the roadmap to our cabinet members. And um, by the end of April, they have to come back with their concrete ideas 
on, on what we're going to do over the next year and then over the next 500 days to implement that, that roadmap. Um, we, we had to choose April because they have to get through the legislative session and then they will be back to me with their, their concrete roadmap plans. So we, we are continuing um, with that project that we've been working on with IHC and others. Uh, so that is moving forward, but I'm, I'm really excited to see what the team brings back and, uh, and, and how we'll be able to implement those over the next year. But, but, but I can tell you again, part of that roadmap was um, we, we also had in there uh, under that section dealing with, with the coronavirus. And so our, our handbook on, uh, on, on reaching um, those, uh, the, those at-risk communities with vaccines, that was part of our social determinants of health. And, uh, and so the health department's been very involved there. Um, the, these other groups that we put together, our multicultural group, our rural um, health partners who are helping us on, on those issues. Uh, but, but I can tell you, there will be there will be pieces of this around uh, around opioids and suicide prevention. Uh, again, this is another piece where rural Utah is hit disproportionately than um, the the, uh, the the rest of the state. We have a couple counties down in the you know the the central and and southeastern part of the state that, that have been much harder hit by the opioid crisis and and these uh, deaths of despair that we're seeing. That's, that's also part of this. And so I'm I'm just I'm really excited for the plan that's coming together. Is there anything else on your mind as far as education access, you know, social context or economic stability, that that realm of social determinants of of health? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll be working in in every one of those um, areas. Uh, So, and and interestingly, uh, you know, the education piece and the access piece kind of come together in many ways. And one one of the bills we've been working on with the legislature is more funding to, uh, to help us do more outreach, you know, for example, Medicaid expansion, um, there's still, it's amazing to me how many people think um, that Medicaid was not expanded in the state of Utah. And I think the reason for that is that um, Medicaid expansion passed, and then the legislature made some changes and, and in the end, those changes were almost universally agreed to and supported even by the people who would run the initiative. And yet there was this narrative that the legislature was undoing everything that happened and so a lot of people just don't realize that they now have access to healthcare, um, and and so they haven't gotten it. So we have to do a better job of reaching out to them. That's that's an important piece of this. Um, but the, w- one of the other pieces of the roadmap is education equity, and it ties directly into uh, to to the, the the social determinants of health. I, I ran on this. I'm committed to this. Making sure that we get additional funding to our low-income schools uh, so that, that um, young people can have the same educational opportunities as those who live in more affluent areas. And, and that's going to be a major focus. My education team's working on that right now. And, and so there, there's just so many exciting um, opportunities I think that we have right now, and there's momentum there. And the legislature is supportive of what we're doing. And I'm just, I'm just super excited for the, uh, for, for the next 500 days and what we can accomplish. Well, thank you so much, Governor. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about social determinants of health in Utah? Um, anything on your mind that you didn't get to, to mention? Well, maybe, maybe just this, Molly, and, and that is that there, there's a lot that we can do at the state and federal level, but so much of this work is done at the community level. 
and strengthening communities matters and, and, and not kind of recreating things, but finding out what's working in local communities. Um, I, I know there are several programs that have been successful in, uh, in Grand County um, and, and in other places. Um, and we want to, we want to be partners and we want to, uh, we want to elevate those, those programs that are working and, and making a difference. And so we'll, we, we need those local partners and, and those ideas coming to us. And we're, we're just excited about forming new partnerships and strengthening partnerships that have existed for a long time. Governor Spencer Cox speaking to one of his strategic priorities of his administration, addressing the social determinants of health in Utah. For more on this subject, including more info on what Intermountain Healthcare and the Moab Free Health Clinic are doing to address social determinants, check out our Thursday newscast. We'll link to it in the show notes of today's news on our website and podcast. And now let's go to our weekly newsreel where we speak with reporters and editors about their latest local stories. Trash and recycling pickup will look a little different come the 1st of May. Editor Doug McMurdo has more from the Times Independence coverage. Big news coming out of Grand County's Solid Waste Special Service District has purchased monument waste for uh, $11.4 million. The Mm -hmm. owners, uh, uh, Dan and Bonnie Kirkpatrick, are going to retire uh, at the end of April officially and the special service district will start uh, operations collecting trash around town, handling the recyclables, handling everything that Monument Waste has, the transfer stations, uh, the whole kit and caboodle, as they say. So, yeah, that's huge news. I, I talked to um, uh, the manager, uh, Evan uh, Terrell, and uh, he said that um, you know, this is something that had been highly recommended for about a dozen years to make it as efficient as possible. So Mm. in the long run, I think this will probably um, save residents and businesses with their uh, trash catch because you're going to have a public entity providing that service instead of somebody who needs to make a profit. The whole kit and caboodle, as you said, that means our public solid waste district will be transitioning to doing our trash pickup and recycling pickup? All of that. Um, they've, they've purchased all of the real property, the transfer stations, um, everything, uh, everything, all the trucks, all the cars, everything. You know, I wonder how this might affect, I, I can't remember the year, you know, all the years are flowing together, but there was a lot of community discussion when Monument Waste started doing a single stream recycling pickup, how that was going to affect the community recycling center, which as you know, the solid waste district manages. And the community recycling center, to be clear, is a source separated method of recycling. So it's different than single stream. I'm curious whether the solid waste district is going to keep Monument's single stream recycling or go to source separated with everything. That's a very good question and one that I neglected to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, listener, I was curious about this, so I'm jumping in really quick here. As of this morning, the Solid Waste District says they plan to keep all of Monument Waste's operations as currently set up. That includes single-stream recycling. And did they have any sort of timeline as to when this transition will take place? I think I said earlier that they're going to assume... Uh, operations May 1st. 
And where else would you like to take us in the Times Independent, Doug? Um, real quick, Carter Poppy did a, a post-mortem, as we say in uh, the newspaper business, on the 2021 legislative session. And about 17, 18 bills that were introduced um, where Grand County stood in support or opposition to and what the final what the final outcome was. So did it fail? Did it pass? Did Governor Cox sign it into law already? Um, pretty interesting story. I think that um, people who look at it will go, oh, yeah, I remember that. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's a good uh, report card, if you will, uh, for the legislature and um, for Grand mm-hmm. County going forward. And it's a yeah. mixed bag. We won some and lost some. It's always nice to look back at what happened because those 45 days go so fast and bills change and, you know, what starts out, you know, one bill starts out uh, one way and then looks completely different by the end of it. And it has its own personality. You know, we had uh, Governor Cox get elected in November and this session just felt... um, uh, different than it did, uh, you know, in previous sessions that I've covered with um, uh, Gary Herbert uh, in the governor's mm-hmm. office. So it's it was um, kind of unusual to, to notice that weird paradigm shift. And finally, Doug, the Times Independent covered Moab City's stance on the UDOT regional transportation planning process. Can you give us some highlights from that? Yeah, most of the, the thing that made this the the main story in the paper this week was, um, uh, as you know, earlier this month, Grand County Commission elected to um, ask Utah Department of Transportation to remove the future construction of a bypass from this regional transportation plan. And the city held a workshop on this plan Tuesday night uh, before the regular meeting, and it was a very eye-opening discussion ranging from the 15 projects that are in the plan uh, that the city will will approve, but the the big upshot on this was whether the city and the county want to remove uh, the bypass from future consideration, UDOT might not do that. God has been uh, strongly encouraged to keep it in by uh, its own consultant. And that revelation led to other revelations ranging from the whole year-long process that Mayor Emily Niehaus and Council Member Kaylin Jones were part of this uh, uh, committee, and there were also Grand County officials uh, on it, and of course UDOT officials. The mayor and others were um, less than um, impressed with the entire process. She said she felt detached, um, that they weren't being taken seriously. It just uh, really didn't leave her feeling like the city had the uh, the ability to put it put in its two cents worth. Council member Ronnie Darisari, she she rarely gets angry, but she was very angry when she found out that allegedly that UDOT had not been as transparent with um, its actions. So there's a lot of a lot of heartburn on the council right now with UDOT, and I haven't had a chance. Uh, to call UDOT and get and get their side of the story, but it seems like um, UDOT does do a lot. And, and Mayor Niehaus mm-hmm. mentioned that 
whatever letter they send to UDOT, that it should express the gratitude for the projects that it's mm -hmm. done in the past and what it will do in the future. Okay, so interesting discussion. These conversations around transportation get a little confusing, so please, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to try and summarize what happened in recent weeks. So as the Times Independent reported last week, uh, the Grand County Commission unequivocally said we no longer want to entertain the notion of a bypass. And they took that position largely in response to the city, whose council members were reluctant to sign on to a different transportation planning process with the county unless they got clarity about the county's position on the bypass. It was sort of assumed that when the city and the county said, we don't want to talk about the bypass anymore, we don't want it in future transportation plans, we don't want it in the regional transportation plan either, that perhaps UDOT would remove it from their long-term regional transportation plan. But after the discussion at the city this week, the Times Independent is saying that maybe that's not the case. Correct. Um, and we don't know what UDOT's going to do. Another reason I think readers would want to look at this story is Chuck Williams, the city engineer, does go into a little bit of depth on some of the projects that are proposed long range. We're talking uh, 25 to 50 years of multimodal trail system on the west side of uh, Highway 191, extending the pathway on Highway 128, uh, building a parking lot for truckers and RVers uh, south of I-70 to keep them out of town, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to rest, um, expanding Cane Creek up to the Moab Rim trailhead, mm -hmm. guardrails on 128, and uh, even a frontage road uh, on 191 in the vicinity of Mill Creek and Aggie Boulevard, the road to uh, uh, USU Moab campus is under construction right now with even an underpass for bicycles. That would be pretty cool. There's, but there's a, a lot of um, really interesting uh, projects proposed. Doug McMurdo, editor of The Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Readers of the Moab Sun News might be familiar with Anastasia Huffam's byline. She's reported for the paper since last summer. We speak with her today about a pair of articles she wrote this week. But first, a brief introduction to the reporter. My name is Anastasia. I am a Yale student on a gap year from college uh, due to COVID-19, and I ended up choosing to live in Moab for my year off because I really was drawn to the Moab Sun News and the work that they do over there. So I've been covering San Juan County and the Navajo Nation for the past couple of months, and I've really learned a lot about this area, the history it holds, and the fascinating culture that so many people have influenced over, you know, really thousands of years. Well, we're certainly lucky to have you in our community because you've been writing about some really interesting things like you just outlined. One of the articles that you have in the Moab Sun News this week is kind of a, a look into how San Juan County schools are going to increase their native staff. What what got you interested in this subject? Yeah, absolutely. So I just, in general, I'm really interested in how schools serve their student populations, especially in a place like San Juan County, which is pretty much split between um, some like Mormon ranchers who might live in Blanding and Monticello, and then you have the Navajo Nation residents who live in Navajo Mountain and Bluff and et cetera. 
Um, and those are two very different student populations, especially when you consider, you know, cultural influences, internet access which is another big thing, um, and how the staff can best serve those students. So I was really interested in that when I heard about it. Um, and I got on the phone with the superintendent over there at the San Juan School District. His name is Ron Nielsen. And he was just talking about how, and I think he put this really well, it's not about, you know, trying to serve one group of students over another. It's that if one group of students can be elevated, all of the students are going to be elevated. If mm -hmm. one group of students can have teachers that they think might understand them on a more cultural level, on a deeper, more personal level, all of the students are going to benefit from that. And I thought that was really powerful, um, especially just considering COVID and how students are feeling really alienated from their schools right now just because they can't really in person as much, um, especially for those on the Navajo Nation um, where transportation and internet um, are serious issues. Yeah, so what did you find there? How did the San Juan County School District say they wanted to attract and foster more Native teachers and administrators? So um, Nielsen, Superintendent Nielsen, has introduced a plan to their school board that would have two teachers a year from the district be financially supported throughout a three-year program to get their administrator's license. It's not to have those selected teachers just only be um, Native American or Navajo or um, Ute Mountain Ute, but really any teacher who would like to get that administrative license so that they can. And if mm -hmm. they can improve their administrative diversity along the way, that's going to be a great thing as well. So the program is not officially implemented yet. Um, Nielsen was just introducing it, and it got a lot of positive feedback. So he is starting to um, form a committee to kind of work out the finer details, such as, you know, what does it mean um, when they're selected? Do they have worked a given number of years in the school district before being educated about their administrative license, um, mm -hmm. those other finer details. And he's also reaching out to some partners, such as uh, the Utah Navajo Trust Fund, um, USU Blanding, uh, to see if they would help fund these teachers who want to get their administrative licenses. That's so interesting. You know, you also point out in the article that this is, um, and you've been, you know, mentioning this, but the district is sort of ensuring, I guess, that they have hiring processes as straightforward and equitable as possible. Yeah, I think that um, another really interesting part that Superintendent Nielsen pointed out was that this is not just about trying to improve Native American diversity just on their river region of the school district, which is heavily on the Navajo Nation. This is about increasing Native American diversity everywhere throughout that school mm -hmm. district, in Blanding, in Monticello, all throughout the district, which I found to be a really important concept because he has a lot of faith that it's going to enrich everyone's, every student, every administrator's kind of um, education and work experience. Interesting. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about this piece? It's definitely interesting to think that, you know, 59% of the school district's population is Native American. And I think it's really admirable that they're trying to um, get an administration um, or increase representation in their administration. I think that's a really, really admirable effort. And I, I hope that, you know, other school districts who might be in, in similar situations, you know, throughout the country might start trying to do things like this. I think it's really awesome. Now, I'm hoping um, we can talk about another article that you wrote that's in The Sun this week about some research on conservation efforts in arches. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I'm sure everyone in town has noticed the, you know, hour-long traffic back into town from the north and how arches had to close several days in October, almost every day in October, um, mm -hmm. due to 
sheer just mass of domestic visitors. Um, and I actually wrote an article about this in October when there were so many people coming through that artists had to close nearly every day compared to only eight closures in 2019 in October. So I thought that, that was really interesting. But Miller and Wayne Friedman at the USU Moab campus kind of noticed the same thing. They said, let's Let's take a look at this. Let's see what the kind of overcrowding is doing, not only to the natural resources that we all love to recreate in and around in, in Moab, um, but also like for COVID-19 purposes, considering that we're all supposed to be, um, you know, staying six feet apart. They set up these motion sensor cameras and these like infrared sensors um, to monitor how many people are going through the visitor center um, and some other places. I think they also set up um, some cameras in the windows area. But this um, most recent, the findings of their most recent study were just focusing on the visitor center. And they found that most visitors were minimizing their group sizes, like most tried to only, you know, come into the visitor center if they had to come in or only go to the restroom if they had to, you know, when there was space available, we're spreading out. So that's really great to hear just about, you know, general public safety. But they did say, you know, in other parts of the park where the trails may narrow, when there's just less space to get away from other people, that might not be possible. So they basically just recommended that park personnel um, consider to uh, continue to enforce CDC guidelines, make sure everybody's wearing masks and such, um, but on the whole that people are kind of doing their own thing, which is really good to know. So your article delves into that research for sure. It also mentions that the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics named Arches National Park a hotspot. Uh, can you tell us what that means? Yeah, so I'm sure that a lot of um, people who live here have heard of Leave No Trace. You know, it's just a good resource for knowing how to leave um, whatever beautiful lands you're in as you found them when you leave. So the Leave No Trace Center basically identified arches as a place where these natural resources are not being left as beautiful as they were found. Um, so mm -hmm. the Leave No Trace Center um, has identified arches as a hotspot, um, just saying that we are, we've experienced a lot of heavy, you know, foot traffic and that's causing erosion, wildlife distur disturbances, trash um, and other things that just aren't great for our protected areas. Um, so they're going to send a team out to work with the National Park Service at Arches um, to try to help and reduce those human impacts on protected areas. They are have already started to do a couple of, you know, trainings uh, this month, and then they're going to do another set of trainings and um, workshops in September, which will be open to the public. So if you're interested in kind of learning about how how to leave no trace and, you know, how to keep these uh, lands beautiful for generations to enjoy. Um, they will be hosting some more events in September and just doing some service work to teach, you know, visitors, land managers, people in our Moab community how to recreate responsibly in areas like ours. Anything else to mention about this piece or what readers can find in it? If you're interested in the USU study by those two professors, I think that is a really interesting one. It's just crazy also to look at the numbers of how much 2020 visitation increased considering everything, you know, mm. just people hopped in their cars um, and decided, you know, because they were working remotely or doing school remotely and just really headed to Utah's wide open spaces. And it's really wild to see the number increase based on 2019's numbers to 2020's. <laughs> Everyone in Moab has definitely noticed the uh, traffic. So I think it's really interesting just to see those numbers and see how our um, national parks are dealing with that kind of overcrowding. Anastasia Huffam, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. 
And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with reporters and editors about their latest local stories. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of our news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.